When we're not simple, we become really shallow. We can only focus on the immediate things around us and never dive in to discover something deeper or more meaningful. As we practice simplicity together, we need to learn not to have a non-complicated life. That would be wonderful, but probably boring. As we practice simplicity, we need to learn instead to practice being genuine, being vulnerable, being real with one another, to share our hurts and our pains, to open up the possibility that maybe, maybe in our sadness there could be joy, in our hurt there can be healing. Maybe life is about a transformation of the heart more than anything that happens externally. Hi, this is Chris from The Point, a church where you can come as you are and you can text in your questions. You may not be sure what you believe about God, Jesus, faith, or the Bible, and that's okay, because faith is not about having it all figured out, and God is not waiting for you to put your life together before He'll connect with you. If you'd like to find out more about The Point, you can visit our website at thepointknox.com or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at The Point Knox. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are. Good morning. Here at The Point, we believe that part of our life with Jesus means we should be growing in our faith, growing in our understanding and our knowledge of God, but more importantly, growing in living out the life that he created for us. Now, none of that is a requirement to salvation, a requirement to having faith or living with Jesus. But if we believe that living with Jesus is just an abstract theological concept or mental framework that never translates into changing our daily life, We are missing out on God's goodness and his faithfulness each and every day. And so to help us practice this life of Jesus the way that he lived, we have three things we try to do on a regular basis. Spend time with Jesus, spend time becoming like Jesus, and then in turn begin to do the types of things Jesus did and even still to this day is doing. So we are right now in a series about simplicity, the practice of becoming like Jesus by organizing our external life in such a way that it transforms our internal life, by organizing the excess around us in such a way that the excess within us can be cut away, that we can begin to focus on what is most important to us and in turn most important for us. Now, as we go through this practice of simplicity, again, I'll remind you, this is just an invitation. If you're hearing these words today, and you're like, this practice is not what I want to be about, that's okay. But if you're hearing the things we're talking about in this series, and you're like, I want my life to look a little bit more like that, I believe wholeheartedly this practice of simplifying our life will help us experience Jesus in our daily walk with him more. So last week we began in Luke chapter 12, and we're going to 
continue in Luke chapter 12 today. So if you'd like to flip open to Luke 12, it's on page 1087 in the Bibles that are in front of you or on the sides if you're upstairs. If you have your own Bible or would like to use your phone Bible, that's okay too, but I don't know the page number for that. Luke chapter 12, last week, Jesus is confronted with a question. There's a man who's fighting with his brother who comes and says, Jesus, tell him to give me my inheritance. And Jesus, in a semi-ironic way, says, who made me judge over you? Right? Well, we all know Jesus is the judge over all the living and the dead, and yet he said, I'm not here to judge your financial matters. Why are you trying to waste my time with this? And he goes on and he tells a story about a man who had a really, really good harvest, which in an agricultural society means everything was going well for him. He had not only enough for himself, but a great abundance to help and serve others. And instead, what he chooses to do in this story Jesus tells is this man tears down his barns and rebuilds bigger ones so that he can store more stuff for himself. In many ways, we in America are like this too with our average of 7.3 square feet of extra storage space per person in the country, right? We just need to build bigger barns and have room for more stuff and then we can relax and things will go well. And he says in Luke 12, in that end of the story, Jesus says, you fool, tonight your life will be demanded of you. And he gives this warning, the stuff you accumulate will ultimately leave you one day. Either it will be taken by somebody else, like the government taking taxes, or it'll be taken by somebody else when you die and it's left behind. No matter what, this stuff will not fill your life with joy. And then he continues where we're going to pick up today, Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 22 immediately after the story about the man building bigger barns. What immediately follows is this. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing." I just like that. Right off the bat, we're going to start with this. Jesus, immediately following a warning about building bigger barns and having more stuff, says, look, let me tell you, don't worry. It'll be okay. See, there is a reality that the more stuff we have or the more stuff we perceive we need to have, there's a direct correlation with the more we worry about not having we fear that maybe our stuff will break or be outdated or out of style or maybe people will look upon us funny because we don't have the things they think we should have or maybe, maybe, maybe in living in this what-if world and this worry about all the stuff around us, we as Americans love to go into debt, to buy the things we don't need, to impress the people we don't like with money we don't have. Like the average American has $15,000 of credit card debt. I'm not talking about student loans and mortgages and car payments and all the other things we go into debt with. We are consumed with the need to consume, and in turn, it consumes us 
with worry. Jesus says, don't worry about the things you will eat or what you will wear. Isn't life about more than just those things? And then he continues. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, I just love that right there, right? Like, it's a small thing to add an hour to your life. I don't know, I'd be pretty happy if I could add an hour or two to my life. Jesus says, if you can't even do that little thing, why worry about the other things? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not. Your Father in heaven delights in giving you good things. All of his kingdom, everything that he is, he delights in giving to you. Now let me just throw this little caveat in here because we live in a culture that often mishears that phrase. To say the Lord delights in giving you his kingdom does not mean you will have everything you've ever wanted. Anybody in here have kids? How many of your kids ask for stupid stuff all the time? I know that you could eat six Krispy Kreme donuts, but you shouldn't. And yes, I know that dad sometimes does, but he shouldn't. Like, just because you want it doesn't mean God will give it to you. What is it with food and clothing? He says everything you need, he'll provide. He's a good father. Even as a dad and a not-so-good father at times, an imperfect father, when my kids ask me for good things, I really enjoy giving it to them. And sometimes I say no because I'm selfish and I want the last donut. And sometimes I say no because I know they've already had enough and if they eat more, it will be bad for everybody. And sometimes I say no because I need to learn that no is a good word. Do you know that God sometimes says no to our requests? Simply to teach us that no is good? Jesus, he tells this story, fear not, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And then he gives this antidote. All right? If you find yourself consumed with worry and anxiety over what you will eat and what you will wear, if the stuff that you're pursuing is pursuing you and consuming your life, here's the solution. Sell your possessions 
and give it to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You find yourself consumed with anxiety and worry about the stuff that you have or the stuff that you don't yet have or the stuff that you someday hope to have, here's Jesus' solution. Just sell it and give it away. It'll be okay. I once, when I was younger, uh, was really wrestling with some of these things Jesus says because multiple times he says, sell your stuff, give it all away. And I don't know about you, but as a bachelor, my stuff wasn't worth the amount of time it took to sell it. Like, my stuff was garbage. In fact, quite literally, I pulled my, tr- my couch out of the dumpster because it was free, and I didn't want to say no. And I was wrestling with these things, and I, I wrestled with, well, how do I sell my stuff that's not worth much, and then what do I have after that? Somebody encouraged me, said, Adam, what if you used your stuff, all of it, including the dumpster couch, what if you used it to serve the needy? That was a really challenging thing. How do I use my house and my stuff and my coffee pot? How do I use the simplest things to serve others? But what that did for me was made me realize if I'm too attached to my stuff to begin to serve others with it, maybe I'm serving my stuff more than the Lord. Jesus, he ends, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Throughout the New Testament, heart is often used interchangeably with the word soul to imply that very gut, that seat of all desire, that thing within you that you long for more than anything else. Look, where your heart is, where your soul is, that's where your treasure is going to be. What is it that you desire What is it that you long for at your core? If it's for the acceptance that comes from having new and cool things, you will always not have the newest and coolest thing and miss out on that acceptance. If your core desire, your core longing is for the the comfort that comes from having everything you've ever hoped for, there will always be something new to hope for. Jesus, he says this in Mark. We'll flip there for a moment. Then Mark, he says this, and and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? See, Jesus says, look, if you chase after all this stuff, and in doing so, you lose your very soul, your heart, you miss out on everything I have for you. So trust me, give it all up. It's okay. Now, I also have to throw this caveat out there. Sometimes when we hear sermons like this, we think anybody who has stuff must be evil. No, that's not true. It's okay to have stuff. As long as you have stuff and your stuff doesn't have you. 
As long as your stuff is something that is a gift from God that in turn can be a blessing to others, that stuff can be helpful. But for most of us, probably all of us, we have stuff that simply clutters. And I don't just mean your material possessions. We have stuff in our heart, stuff inside of us, desires and fears and concerns that clutter and keep us from the things God has in store. I'm a big fan of movies, especially Disney and Pixar movies. Anybody like Pixar or Disney? My wife and I recently rewatched a movie that I really love, Inside Out. Anybody ever seen Inside Out? Cool, if you haven't, spoiler alert, all right? Plug your ears if you don't want to have it spoiled, but at this point, it was like eight years ago it came out, so that's on you, all right? Inside Out is a movie about a little girl. I think she's 11, maybe she's 12, but this little girl is going through a major life crisis. Her family moves from Minnesota to San Francisco, and she's struggling with the pain of all of her loss. And in the movie Inside Out, we see it from a perspective that is very different. We see it from the inside of her brain looking out specifically from the perspective of the five main emotions that control all of her action. Anger and disgust and fear and sadness and joy. And at the start of the movie, joy runs the show. Her whole life is joyous. Now, if you have ever been 11 or 12 before, you know that life quickly becomes really complicated at that age. Things get difficult And throughout the movie, we see Joy is wrestling with sadness because Joy thinks sadness is the problem. If I want to keep her joyful and fill her with happiness, we just have to eliminate everything difficult or sorrowful or sad. And throughout the movie, we see that her personality is tied directly to core memories, things that were dear to her that shape who she is. And as those memories get lost and juggled and she goes through some challenges, we find she's wrestling with her personality, who she is being lost. Ultimately, spoiler alert, as the movie ends, what we discover is that sadness actually goes together with joy. That it's in the places of sadness we can begin to experience joy. Other people can comfort us or encourage us. That it's when sadness and joy, sorrow and joy are together that we can begin to see things actually looking up better. And what we see is through this mixing of her core memories, of her identity, she actually grows and has more personality and more of herself and is even better still. See, we often think that the opposite of simplicity is complexity. And we think we just have to be as basic and as as simple as possible and nothing can be complicated. But that's not the truth. See, the opposite of simplicity is not complexity, it's superficiality. When we're not simple, we become really shallow. We can only focus on the immediate things around us and never dive in to discover something deeper or more meaningful. As we practice simplicity together, we need to learn not to have a non-complicated life. That would be wonderful, but probably boring. 
As we practice simplicity, we need to learn instead to practice being genuine, being vulnerable, being real with one another, to share our hurts and our pains, to open up the possibility that maybe, maybe in our sadness there could be joy, in our hurt there can be healing. Maybe life is about a transformation of the heart more than anything that happens externally. We need to simplify our life specifically in our heart. What are the things that clutter us? Now, I like the movie Inside Out as it gives this wonderful perspective on emotions and how they shape us, and not only that, how life is really much more complicated, and that's where the beauty is. But I think it's not our emotions necessarily that drive us, but it's that heart, that soul, that thing we long for. And sometimes we discover that through rational thought and sometimes through emotion and sometimes through others. But other times we discover that the thing we think is driving us is actually not the thing driving us at all. Like sometimes we may say the most important core reality of our life is our family. And in our pursuit of elevating our family, we create a sense of pressure. A pressure that just builds and builds that says you must be perfect and get everything right. You can't screw up or ever show weakness. And as we pursue family, instead what we do is we drive a wedge with the very people we love. Somewhere deep inside, under the surface, we find ourselves hurting, wishing something was different, but not knowing how to repair it. Sometimes we can think that we have all the right values, but what's actually happening is destroying the very thing we're trying to build. We believe that our family is most important, and so we fill our schedule with things for the family. And every night of the week, we're going different places for different kids. We're taking them to these different sports and these events and these activities because by doing these things, my family will be better off. But in doing so, we never take time to have dinner or conversations that are meaningful or real. We think that the best thing to do for my kids is to prepare them for a better life in the future, so we want to make sure they do really well in school and we put a pressure to get the right grades or to apply for the right scholarships or go to the right college or become the right person. All the while we forget who they are right now. Have you ever been there? You've stopped and looked back and said, I, I missed the mark. I missed it. By engaging in the practice of simplicity, we get to begin to evaluate what matters most to us. And then we get to begin to organize our external world around those internal things we care the most about. It looks like this. What matters most is family. So maybe I need to say no to the job that requires me to be gone every night at bedtime. Maybe I need to say no to the job that's going to consume all of my time with my emails and my texts and they think I'm 24-7 on call. If I do that, I can't put family first. 
Maybe it's not family that's the thing that you value most. Maybe it's community. My wife and I are currently struggling with this because we're in the process of buying a house and we're really excited to finally own a house again after several years of renting. And at the same time, we really love our neighbors. And we're struggling with which is more important, ownership of a house that can be a great blessing or the neighbors that we don't want to leave because we care deeply about them. I'll let you know how that one shakes out. What is the thing that's most important to you? Is it God? I often hear people say, I want my kids to know Jesus and to walk with Jesus and follow Jesus. And then they also say things like, but I'm not going to force Jesus on them so they can choose to come to church when they want to or not. Anybody as a junior high kid choose to come to church by your own free will? I did, but for all the wrong reasons. I chose because there were cute girls there. That was it. That's right. Anybody let your kids choose to play in traffic? Like, look, I don't think you should play on the interstate, but if you want to, like, I'm not going to stop you. Probably not. In fact, if you do, we're going to have to have a conversation about your parenting style. Because if you believe something is good for somebody, you want them to experience that. But here's what I often hear from people who've left the church. Well, I left the church because religion was forced on me. But generally when I talk to people, the forced religion was, you have to do this, but I'm not going to. So if you want your kids to follow Jesus, maybe you need to look at your life and say, am I following Jesus? That they can look at me and see an example of what this looks like. And then from that place, you can tell them all the times you've screwed up and said, I'm sorry, I have not been like Jesus. Will you forgive me? And invite them to walk with you in this journey. What is that thing at your core that is most important to you? I believe simplicity in our life, uh, centering all of our values, all of the things in our heart, simplifying all of these things to be centered on the most important things, I think it looks like Two different things. First, we learn to live for God's presence. What does that mean? God is with you always. He is with you when you're at work doing a job that you hate for a boss who's a jerk. Sorry, Emily. I don't think she hates her job or her boss, I hope. God is, God is with you when you're at the grocery store and you're complaining because inflation is a real bummer, and you're like, I can't believe I have to pay this much for these items, or I can't believe they don't have milk because a storm's coming. Why would people buy milk when a storm's coming? I don't know. But if we begin to see God with us in all things, something happens to those moments. The time that you're at the grocery store, actually, instead of being a chore you hate doing, can be redeemed to be a moment where God can speak or move or transform. Maybe he speaks to you or maybe through your kindness, he speaks to the cashier who wants to be there even less than you do. When we begin to live for God's presence in every moment, every moment has a significantly greater meaning. Simplifying our life begins with looking for God is not just an hour on Sunday morning. 
No, he's also here when I'm working on my motorcycle. How do I seek him in this place? He's also here when I'm eating leftovers for the third night in a row because we don't want them to go to waste. How do I make this a positive thing and experience him here? Second, simplifying our life around God, around the right things, means learning to live for God's pleasure. Here's what that means. Did you know God delights himself in you? Like he's not angry with you or mad at you or waiting for you to fix all the stuff you screwed up. He simply delights himself in you. Like a good father who likes to give good gifts to his children, he likes to talk to you and be with you and share with you. Like he really likes you more than I can ever imagine and express. So to live for God's pleasure is to say, God, in this moment, what brings you joy? You want to know what brings God joy? When we take all of our sin and we say, hey, God, I I keep screwing up. Will you forgive me? When we just lay ourselves bare and vulnerable before him, he says, hey, I love this. I love you. It'll be okay. To live for his pleasure is to look out for our neighbor and see our neighbor in need. Now, sometimes people think, I have to love my neighbor because God wants me to or God needs me to. Let me clarify. God does not need you to love your neighbor. Your neighbor needs you to love your neighbor. Your neighbor needs you to show them Jesus. I had a conversation earlier this week with somebody, and this is unfortunately not the first time and probably not the last time I'll have this conversation. It was somebody who loves Jesus and is really struggling because they said, I want to be Christian, I do love Jesus, but when I use the word Christian, people begin to assume some really terrible things. Why? Because in our culture, we think that to be Christian is to do everything for God's sake. So I'm only being nice to you so that I can tell you about Jesus. I'm only serving you when you're hungry or helping you when you're poor or helping you when you're, when you're hurting only so that I can tell you how much Jesus loves you. You know what sometimes the best method of evangelism is? Let somebody know that you're a Christian and then don't be a jerk. Like just be nice with no strings attached. I'll care about you because you're worth being cared about. When we live with that as the center of our heart, God rejoices in it. And we begin not only to live for his pleasure, but from it. To experience his presence and his goodness and his kindness and his peace and his patience. We begin to experience that in all things. And life becomes so much better. But far too often we get consumed with all the things this world throws at us. Not only in the physical stuff, but in the things to fill our heart. And we chase after stuff that leaves us empty. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world to lose his soul? So what does it profit you? If your kids go to a great college and get excellent jobs and your retirement's fully funded and you have all the toys and you have a nice house and your kitchen's remodeled, what does it profit you? If in chasing after all of those things, you lose the core of who you are. 
what does it profit you? Nothing. So this upcoming week, as we seek to live from a place of simplicity, we're going to be asking ourselves this question. What matters most? What is it that matters most to you? Is your life centered around that or those things, if there's a few of them? Take a real honest assessment. Are you centering your time and your energy and your focus and your money around the things that you say matter most? We can only do that after we identify the things that matter most. So this week, we're going to ask that question, what matters most to you? And I believe when we find that, we can begin to say no to all the stuff that's really not important. And as our life becomes simpler, God becomes greater in our midst. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you and we confess that we often are filled with anxiety and worry over the things we should eat, the things we should wear, the stuff we don't have that we think we need, the stuff we have that we can't afford. God, we confess that we often fill our hearts and our minds with desire for all sorts of things that leave us empty. God, in the name of the things that we think are good, we miss out on what's great. Teach us to reorganize our life, to live for your presence, to live for your pleasure, to honestly wonder what matters most begin to get rid of things that don't. Teach us to confess where we have failed and to trust in your healing power and your grace for moving forward. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue our worship now, we are going to collect an offering at this time. We don't pass the offering buckets at the moment, but they are in the back. So if you're somebody who prefers to give with cash or check, or if you filled out one of those physical connect cards with a way we can pray with you or connect with you, you can place that physical gift in the popcorn buckets in the back as you exit. If you're somebody who prefers to give online, uh, let me just give you a heads up. Maybe you'll notice the online button has changed slightly. It's the same thing, but... Uh, slightly different, and there's some reasons for that I won't go into. It's going to be great for now. If you prefer to give online, you can give at thepointknox.com by clicking that little teal button in the bottom corner. Uh, it'll be exactly like it was before, but you may notice that if you give with a bank withdrawal, it now is a quarter for the transaction fee that is uh, passed on to you. So however you give and whatever you give, thank you for your giving. Know this, we don't give to get God's love but because we already have it. Thank you. Well, we end every Sunday with an opportunity to respond to the questions you texted in. And there was one that came in on Monday that I missed and didn't see until yesterday. Um, so we'll start there and then go for the questions that came in today. Absolutely. So that one said, it's so good. This is a good question. How are the more exclusionary beliefs of the Missouri Synod, the Lutheran Missouri Synod, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. So many words. Okay, anyway. Our denomination. Wow, I'm going to start over. <laughs> yeah, this is a great question. Okay, <laughs> how are the more exclusionary beliefs of the Missouri Synod compatible with the mission of the point? 
Some examples would be their anti-LGBTQ beliefs and their stance on traditional gender roles. That's a great question. Um, the simplest answer is, I think, we have a culture today that says inclusion means uh, that we all agree on the same things. And, and so we think that we can only be friends with or be loved by people who agree with us in all things. And this isn't just gender or sexuality, though those are certainly two really big ones. Um, but our culture as a whole says, if I'm included, you must be like me and think like me and approve of the things I think. But I actually believe that it's good for us to disagree and sometimes to butt heads and have a difference of opinion and perspective. So those two specific areas about uh, gender roles or uh, sexuality, I think where the church as a whole has erred in the past is we have made them decisive things that say you're either in or you're out. And likewise, where the culture errs with those two things is they make them decisive. Either you agree or you hate me. And I believe here at the point that we can practice such a way of living that says we may not see things eye to eye, but you are heard, you are valued, we care about you, and we're not trying to change or convince you to be like we are or to believe like we do. And so you're included and you're welcome even if we disagree and there should be a lot of places to talk and discuss and to say, how come we're on a different place here with a different perspective? So. And I would add, there's a lot of people in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod who are having, I mean, who disagree on stuff too. So it's yeah. not like, oh, you don't believe Lutherans? You don't agree? It's like, no, we're all having these conversations and working stuff out still. And, and I will say some Lutheran churches are very exclusionary, and that's not good because it's not just a Lutheran thing. Some Baptist churches and Methodist churches and Presbyterian churches, and we as the church collectively are broken, sinful people. So sometimes we get it wrong. And when we get it wrong, approach us with the same grace we should be offering to you. So the next few questions are easy. Just kidding, they're not easy either. <laughs> Buckle in, okay. Um, first, what is the last resurrection? Are we all just hanging out in nothingness until Jesus comes back? Wow, all right. So uh, you got, thanks Jay for telling him to ask difficult questions. The simplest answer is, I don't know. Uh, the Bible says very little about what happens between the moment you die and the time we rise. So everything you've heard about what happens in that in-between period is made up, but we don't know. We, we, I don't know. So uh, the last resurrection is there will come a day when Jesus returns and all the dead and the living will rise to new life and then on that day will be judged and um, all of us are judged according to our sins or according to the grace of Jesus. And that's what I'm going to trust in because my sins are too many. Super, this, okay, never mind. I was <laughs> going to say it's so rude that the, God knew we'd be curious about that. Yeah, I wish you would have said something. Yeah, for real. Yeah. Okay. Um, what about the whole God gives us the desires of our heart that gets quoted all the time? How can we tell what to simplify and what to cultivate and keep? Great question. Yeah. Um, what are the desires of your heart? I think we start by identifying them. And out of the identifying of them, we can begin to say, are these desires good? Uh, sometimes they are. 
Like for the longest time, I desired to be married, and yet I was single, and that hurt. And that desire created tension, and even at times, my pursuit of finding a wife came ahead of my pursuit of God. So even a good desire can lead you away from God's presence and his blessing of, of his goodness. And so um, first identify what are your desires, and then identify am I willing and able to surrender these desires to Jesus? What if he doesn't fulfill them? Will he be enough even then? I think that's where we start to determine what we need to simplify. Not to continue just adding on to your lovely answers, but also a prayer I love to go back to is, Lord, help my desires align with your desires so that I can be excited about what you have for me and not annoyed by it. I often just lean towards annoyance. So it's important that I pray that a lot. Me too. Um, (laughs) Okay, last question. I was once told, even if you were the only one, Jesus still would have died for you. Something to think about when struggling with grace. And I'm sorry, that was not a question. No, that was not. Well, in there, that's a great, did you say that was the last one? That was the last one, It's a really great place to start. Yes, you matter and. While Christ died to redeem all of creation, he certainly died to redeem you, and he cares about you deeply, no matter your past or your present or your future, no matter your struggles or your pain, you matter, and you're loved. So with that, church. Nope, big old lie. I refreshed the page, and there's more. Okay. (laughs) Sorry, guys. That was a great great place to end. Thanks for the next question. Okay. Okay. Question. There's actually... Oh, one person just said, just wanted to tell you guys we love you all. We love you, we too. We love you, too. Um, is it considered cheating to have my tithe come out automatically? I feel like it is and that it isn't genuine. But on the flip side, I feel better about it since I'm very forgetful. That might as well be me. That, that, that could have been me. My that question. would have been me if it wasn't for my wife, who's much more responsible than I am. Um, I will say this. God's not legalistic and like mad at you if you do it routinely. In fact, routine is good. I routinely breathe and I routinely brush my teeth and these things are good for us, right? And so um, if, if tithing is something God's put on your heart and you want to do it in a physical way that you're reminded of it and you feel it every time, that's great. And if you also just want to like set it and forget it, that's not less generous because you're not feeling it. You're still giving uh, generously. And so I think... Whatever you choose to do is good. We have ours personally set up automatically, so that way it's, it comes right away. Uh, we don't accidentally spend our money and then go, oh no, how do we tithe? No, we tithe first. That way we can't forget about it. So yeah, I think there's nothing wrong with automatically doing it if you'd like. Last question. Is it possible for real this time? Okay, for real. Y'all can trust me. <laughs> is it possible that the desires we currently quote unquote have are not actually the desires of our heart. Yeah, I think that's part of identifying the desires is uh, quite often we end up thinking what we're desiring is good and we're actually chasing something different. Like those examples, we want our kids to have a better future and instead all we do is we drive them away from the church because we fill their schedules with so many things or we tell them they have to go to church and then we don't live it out. And so our desires can be confused and even really confusing. By learning to simplify our heart, we begin to identify the things that really matter and then we can say no to the stuff that doesn't. 
And it's a process, it's a journey, it doesn't happen overnight. You will never be done with it. We all continually simplify the very things that are driving us. It's an ongoing process. And that was, that was the I last. would like to say that I am just reading the questions and y'all are the ones texting them in at the very last second. We had all morning, but there is one more question now. <laughs> See, we can't trust you. No. <laughs> Why do some people accuse the game Dungeons and Dragons to foster demon worship and a belief in witchcraft and magic? It's just an RPG tabletop game, in my opinion. What are your thoughts on this? Well, you guys are really pulling punches today, right? Uh, so, why do some people believe that it's demonic and evil? That's a really big question, and the short answer is, uh, in our Western culture, we disassociate physical from spiritual, and we say it's just a physical thing, but the truth is, that's not what we see in Scripture. There are physical things that have spiritual ramifications, like if you're physically cheating on your wife, you will have a, a hard time connecting with God. It just, it works that way, okay? And, and so some people equate the physical things of uh, Dungeons and Dragons with unhealthy spiritual focuses and attention. And, and as a result, some people see that as bad for you. Um, if, it, is it bad or is it good? That's a really big conversation. But I think that's why some people deem it as bad. No different than some people say all alcohol consumption is bad, even though Jesus drank alcohol, um, right? For them, they see alcohol is always equated with a culture of excess and overindulgence, and you can't have one without the other. So it's all bad. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. Now, did anybody text in a question in that last minute? It's no. Oh, whew. you guys are coming in right there at the end, just sneaking them in. All right. Well, with no more questions on the table for the next 30 seconds, receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. Have a wonderful week. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting The Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.